Good morning, Grace. Turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 3. And while you're turning to Genesis chapter 3, if no one has done this yet, let me be the first to wish you a happy St. Nicholas Day. I don't know if you celebrate the tradition of putting your shoes out and St. Nick puts candy in them, but if you do, that's great. I'm a little too OCD for that. I'm a germaphobe, so I'm not going to eat any candy that's been put in my shoes, but people celebrate that tradition. The real St. Nick, though, is not some chubby old man with a big beard and a jiggly belly. The real St. Nick was Nicholas, and he was a bishop who was at the Council of Nicaea. Now, you know from our series in Hebrews, we've been talking about the Council of Nicaea that took place in 325 AD, and there was a man by the name of Arius that we talked about, and Arius believed that Jesus was not God's eternal son. Arius believed that God created Jesus, that Jesus was the first thing that God created, and so At the Council of Nicaea, when Arius began telling people what he believed about Jesus, it was then that Nicholas, a bishop, went up to Arius and slapped him in the face. And so I celebrate St. Nicholas Day, especially because Nicholas slapped the heretic Arius in the face because of what he believed about Jesus. We're going to take a small break from the book of Hebrews today, and we'll be starting a new Christmas sermon series that I've entitled Ugly Christmas Sweater Party. Now, you may be wondering what's behind the title or the idea of the Ugly Christmas Sweater Party, so if you're unfamiliar with that, let me explain. About 14 or 15 years ago, people began having Christmas parties where everyone that was invited was supposed to show up wearing an ugly Christmas sweater. And they would usually raid their parents' closets or their grandparents' closets looking for an ugly Christmas sweater, or they would hit the thrift stores in search of one. And before long, ugly Christmas sweater parties were happening everywhere. And if you think this is just a fad, the ugly Christmas sweater phenomenon is probably not going anywhere anytime soon because now stores are actually manufacturing these sweaters and you can buy them at places like Target. So it used to be you had to find a real vintage one, but now they're making them. And I've seen some great ones. I've seen some Star Wars ugly Christmas sweaters. I've seen one with Sasquatch on it. Saw one with Guns N' Roses. So they're making them now. So I don't think these parties are going anywhere anywhere, anytime soon. In fact, there's a National Ugly Christmas Sweater Day on December 18th of this year. So now, I think these parties are just a part of the Christmas season. I won't show you what an ugly Christmas sweater is this morning. You can just Google it. And here's why I won't show you a picture of an ugly Christmas sweater. Because you may actually wear ugly Christmas sweaters and not even know that a large part of the population thinks that the sweater that you love to wear is actually considered ugly. So Google it and remember, it's all subjective. Well, what we'll see in this series is how God's mercy and grace invaded the ugly parts of humanity We're going to see how God's mercy and grace showed up in some very messy situations in the Bible. We're going to see how God's mercy and grace showed up in some crazy family situations, some very ugly family situations. 
And what I want to do with each sermon in this series is read a portion out of a book as a sermon opening. The book is titled, Dad is Fat, and it's by comedian Jim Gaffigan. It's a book that's all about how Jim and his wife deal with the joys and the horrors of living with five young children in a two-bedroom apartment in New York City. You can understand why Heather and I have been reading this as part of our nightly devotions. We have six kids, and we totally relate to what Jim Gaffigan writes. And I want to read from this book because you don't get too far in Scripture before you have a man and a woman, and then children, and then families, and then ugly messes and craziness and scandals and drama. And since the first man, Adam, started out alone, since he was the very first bachelor, let me read this part of this chapter from Jim Gaffigan's book, Dad is Fat, and the chapter is titled The Lone Ranger. He says this, I do remember that when I was single, I was a loner by choice. I ate alone, went to movies alone, and even spent time by myself alone. The thought of a roommate to the single me was absurd. Now I have many roommates. I have an eight-year-old, a six-year-old, a three-year-old, a one-year-old, and I don't even think I've met the other one yet. Hey, there are five of them. Five kids may seem overwhelming to you, but how do you think I feel? Ten years ago, I could barely get a date, and now my apartment is literally crawling with babies. It's like I left some peanut butter out overnight. (laughs) Just when I was resigned to the reality of a future of being the proud, weird uncle who lived in New York City, I met Jeannie. Jeannie was unlike any woman I had ever met or have yet to meet. She was part girl next door, part superstar, part insane asylum inpatient. Jeannie was the oldest of nine children, and when I met her, she was directing a Shakespearean play with a hip-hop score featuring about 50 inner-city kids for free. Here was this funny, smart woman who was passionate about her art and, for some reason, children. Working with kids inspired Jeannie's creativity, and being with her inspired me. It was an amazing relationship. Jeannie literally wanted to take care of me. And in turn, I had this crazy, almost biological desire to provide her with, well, someone to take care of. For the first time in my life, I felt like I could spend the rest of my life with someone. Heck, I could even have a child with this person. Even if I knew nothing about kids, Jeannie could just handle everything, right? I already knew I wouldn't have to pay her. Eventually, I tricked Jeannie into marrying me. It was at that point that I discovered Jeannie is someone who gets pregnant looking at babies. And so now I am a loner with a chronic and acute case of children. That's how it was with Adam in the very beginning. He was a bachelor living all alone in the sweetest man cave ever created. And getting married was not on his radar until God said that it was not good for Adam to be alone. So God made Eve and Adam's bachelor days were over. And in time, Adam too would have a chronic and acute case of children. But how Adam got to the point of having children may start out romantic, but it does not stay that way long. In time, he would mess things up. It would get real ugly real fast. In fact, Adam would go on to be a part of the very first ugly Christmas sweater party. 
And that's why I've entitled this series, Ugly Christmas Sweater Party, because in this series, we're going to see how God's mercy and grace showed up in some very messy situations. We're going to see how God's mercy and grace showed up in some crazy family situations, some very ugly family situations. Basically, we're going to see how Jesus crashed several ugly Christmas sweater parties. And what we're going to look at today is the very first ugly Christmas sweater party, and we'll see that mercy crashed the very first ugly Christmas sweater party. We'll see that God always meets our mess with his mercy. God always meets our mess with his mercy. God's mercy always meets our mess. His mercy shows up and doesn't give us what we deserve. God's mercy always trumps our sin. It always trumps our sin. God's mercy has the last word. Always. Sin. Our sin. Our mess. The ugly situations that we create in our lives because of our sin and the ugly situations that we find ourselves in That ugliness and that messiness does not have the final word. Mercy does. Mercy always trumps sin. Always. Mercy always meets us in our mess. One of my favorite Puritans, Thomas Goodwin, said it this way. Thy misery can never exceed his mercy. Your misery can never exceed God's mercy. No matter how bad you mess up your life, you cannot exceed his mercy. No matter what mess you make of your life because of your sin, you cannot exceed God's mercy. And we see that right at the very beginning of the Bible, the very beginning of humanity. We see that Adam and Eve's misery would be no match for God's mercy. And it's a story that you're all familiar with, but what you may not know is that this is the very first ugly Christmas sweater party. You may not know that in Genesis 3, Jesus crashes the very first ugly Christmas sweater party. So turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 3, and we're going to read a large chunk, and then we will discuss how God's mercy meets us smack dab in the middle of our mess. Look at Genesis chapter 3, and hear the word of the merciful God that we serve. Look at verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate and she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. And then the eyes of both of them were open and they knew that they were naked. 
They sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And Adam, the man, said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. And God said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? And the man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree, and I ate. And then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? And the woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. And the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and thus you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. And to the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife, and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field, and by the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you are taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. And so everything was perfect for Adam and Eve in the garden until that talking snake showed up and started asking questions. Everything was perfect. God lavished his grace on Adam and Eve. They could eat whatever they wanted, anytime they wanted, except from that one tree. But other than that, they were free to eat and drink and enjoy God and enjoy his creation. It was perfect. It was all grace. It was all good. And so the next time you hear somebody say that God is not good, just remember Genesis chapter 3. The next time you hear someone say that God is a cosmic killjoy, the next time you hear someone say that God is an old cranky curmudgeon, that he's a miser, or the next time you are tempted to think that, remember this, it was God who put two naked people together in a garden all by themselves. It was God who put two naked people together in a garden all by themselves and there were no rules except one. Don't eat from that tree. Remember that it was God's idea to create a man and a woman and have them be husband and wife. So read marriage here. Read definition of marriage here. Husband and wife, man and woman. And it was his idea to put them in a lush garden where they could eat and drink anything that they wanted except from that one tree. And they were naked and not ashamed and they could enjoy each other with no shame, no guilt, no fear. Remember that the next time you're tempted to think that God is a cosmic killjoy. It was his idea to put two naked people together, a man and a woman, all alone in a garden all by themselves with no rules. 
except don't eat from that tree. You can file that under God is good. And it was into this perfectly good environment that that talking snake showed up and started asking questions. That snake began drilling them with questions about God and what God said. He began casting doubt about how good God was. And he deceived Eve, and she ate some fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, the only tree that was off limits, and then she gave some to her husband Adam, and the text says that he was standing right beside her. And the sad thing here is that Adam didn't step up and smash the head of the serpent right away when he said those things to Eve. Adam should have strangled the life out of that snake. He should have defended the garden because God told him to defend it. When God told Adam to work and keep the garden in Genesis 2.15, he meant that he wanted Adam to protect the place. The Hebrew word for keep, shamar, carries the idea of guarding something or protecting something. And one of my favorite Old Testament scholars, Bruce Waltke, says this. This Hebrew term, shamar, entails guarding the garden against Satan's encroachment. As priests and guardians of the garden, Adam and Eve should have driven out the serpent. Instead, it drives them out. And so Adam, as the protector and guardian of the garden, should have driven the snake away, but he didn't. Instead, he ate some of the fruit just like Eve. But their sin would not have the last word. Their sin would not have the last word. Mercy would come. Mercy was coming. Mercy was on its way. In fact, even as the juice from whatever fruit it was that they ate, even as that fruit juice was running down their chins, God was already preparing to send his son Jesus to Bethlehem to be born. Even as that sweet, sticky juice from that fruit ran down their chins, Jesus was making plans to do what they failed to do, to come and obey God's law completely and to die under the curse of the law for sinners like Adam and Eve and for sinners like us. What a mess Adam and Eve created. And I'm not talking about how sticky their faces were from all that fruit juice, like a toddler with a sticky face. That's not the mess I'm talking about. I'm talking about the fact that this was the very first time any human being made in the image of God had sinned and rebelled against God. This was serious business. This was the very first time that God had experienced anger over a human being's sin. Think about that. This was the very first time that God, in real time, experientially experienced anger at the sin of mankind. And we see his anger in the way that he showed up. But first, notice in verse 7 that Adam and Eve recognized their nakedness And they tried to cover themselves up. Look at verse 7. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. They knew that they had broken God's commands. And so they tried to cover up their shame, to cover up their guilt. And as soon as they had finished sewing up their loincloths, they heard 
some thunder. There was this loud rumbling in the sky. Perhaps they had never heard thunder before. And the clouds started getting dark. And as soon as they, soon they saw lightning crack the sky. And the wind picked up and they realized that God was coming. God was coming to deal with their sin and their rebellion. And by the looks of it, with the dark clouds and the thunder and the lightning and the wind picking up, all things pointed to the fact that when God showed up, he was not going to be in a good mood. And he wasn't. God was angry at their sin. Look at verse 8. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. The Hebrew here could be worded this way. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the wind of the storm. So the Lord comes in wind and storm because he is angry at their sin and their rebellion. And so when Adam and Eve hear the Lord approaching like this, what do they do? They hide. They're no dummies. They jump behind a nice cluster of trees and they're hiding. Why? Because they knew their sin. They knew their rebellion. They knew the ugly mess that they had just created and they knew that God was angry. And now it makes sense why Adam and Eve are hiding. They're scared to death. They'd never seen these dark, ominous storm clouds and tornado-like winds before. And then God confronted them and Adam and Eve fessed up But they started passing the blame. Adam blamed Eve for his rebellion. It's the woman that you gave me. This is why I did it. It's because the woman that you gave me, that's why I sinned. And then Eve said, it's the snake, the snake. He's the one that tricked me. That's why I sinned. So God began addressing each one of them. Now, at this point in the narrative, it feels like their sin and their rebellion is winning the day. It feels like it's over. I mean, it just feels like their sin and their rebellion is going to have the last Word. It feels like their sin, the choices that they have made in their life because of their sin, it feels like that sin will have the last word, the final say in their lives. It feels like the mess that they created, the ugliness that they brought into the world, it felt like that was going to have the final word. God declared to Eve that she would have pain in childbirth, told Adam he would have to labor to bring forth food, food from the ground, Gone are the pleasant days of being naked together in a lush garden and enjoying each other and enjoying all of God's creation. Now, pain and suffering would be a part of their life. So at this point, it feels like sin won the day. It feels like sin has the final word. It feels like the mess and the ugliness that they have created through their choices would have this final say. But Adam and Eve were about to learn a lesson that we all need to learn, and it's this. God always meets our mess with his mercy. Adam and Eve were about to learn that God's mercy always trumps sin. It always trumps our sin. They were about to learn That mercy always has the last word. Always. So sin, our sin, our mess, the ugly situations that we create in our lives because of our sin that we find ourselves in, and the ugliness, the messiness that we experience in our life because of other people's sin, all of that mess, all of that ugliness does not have the final word. Mercy does. Mercy always trumps sin. Always. 
And so with Jesus, we see that he is sovereign and merciful. He is sovereign and merciful. And when those two attributes of Jesus hold hands, sin never has the last word. Because he's sovereign and because he is merciful. You see, but we have a hard time believing this, don't we? I have a hard time believing this. We just can't seem to believe that Jesus is as good and that he is as merciful as he says he is. We struggle to think of him being so merciful to sinners and rebels like us. And so Puritan Thomas Goodwin said this, and we'll quote a lot by him this morning. He said this, So he, Jesus, also lays open his own disposition. In other words, he's saying Jesus tells us what he's like in Matthew eleven twenty eight. Come to me, you that are weary and heavy laden, for I am meek and lowly of heart. Men are apt to have contrary conceits of Christ. Meaning, we are tempted to have contrary thoughts of Jesus, of being meek and mild and gentle with sinners. But he says, but he tells them his disposition there in Matthew eleven twenty eight by preventing such hard thoughts of him, to allure them unto him the more. We are apt to think that he being so holy is therefore of a severe and sour disposition against sinners. I love that phrase. We're so apt to think that Jesus, because he's holy, he's of this severe and sour disposition against sinners like us and that he's not able to bear them. Well, Jesus clearly tells us how he is in Matthew eleven twenty-eight. 28. He is meek and lowly of heart. And he tells us this because we are so prone to have thoughts of him as being hard as nails. We tend to picture Jesus like he's a pit bull just snapping at us. And so Jesus tells us that he is merciful in order to allure us to him because he knows that our temptation is to keep our distance from him. Jesus knew that we would think that because he is so holy, he knew we would think that he must have a sour disposition against us. And that's why Jesus tells us that he's merciful and he's kind and he's gentle to sinners like us. And that's exactly what he showed to Adam and Eve after they sinned. Right at the end of the judgment that God pronounced over the snake, the devil, then God dropped a gospel bomb in the garden. I love that God declares the gospel before he tells Adam and Eve how life will be now that they brought sin into the world. I love that God graciously detonates a gospel bomb in the garden right before he ever tells Adam and Eve the consequences of their sin. Oh, how good he is to us, grace. See how God declares the good news before he ever tells Adam and Eve the consequences of their sin. See how loving he comes to them by giving them hope that their sin and their choices would not have the final word. Right at the end of God's judgment on Satan, God delivers good news to Adam and Eve. Look at verse 15. I will put enmity between you, the serpent, and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. 
Notice the gospel here. One of Eve's descendants, one of her offspring, one of her children, a baby to be born in a manger in Bethlehem would come and crush the head of the serpent. This is an allusion to Jesus, a promise and proof that sin would not have the last word. This is what scholars call the proto-evangelium, the first gospel. This is the first gospel promise that God promised. He would send a descendant of Eve to crush the head of Satan, that talking serpent. And that descendant was his own son, Jesus Christ, who did come and crush the head of the serpent, the devil, on the cross. And his heel was bruised as he died on the cross, but he crushed the head of that talking snake at Calvary. Now, you expect God, who showed up with storm clouds raging around him, you expect him to wipe out the devil, that talking snake at this point in the narrative, but that was not God's plan. God's plan was to send his son Jesus to crush and defeat the devil at the cross many, many years later. And you would expect God, who showed up with storm clouds raging around him, you would expect him to wipe out Adam and Eve at this point. After all, God told them they would die if they ate from that tree. But they didn't die immediately. They died spiritually right then and there. But they did not die physically that day. God did not kill them. He didn't do it. Instead, he was merciful to them. He doesn't give them what they deserve. In fact, God graciously covered their sin. Look at verse 21. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Now, where did God get these clothes for Adam and Eve? Obviously, there was no Target around back then, so God couldn't go pick out an ugly Christmas sweater with Star Wars on the front and give to them. So God slaughtered some innocent animals on their behalf. God killed something innocent in order to cover their shame, to cover their guilt, to cover their sin. This is grace. This is grace having the last word. And this is the very first ugly Christmas sweater party. I'm sure those animal skins were not pretty. I'm sure Eve would have loved to dress over some rabbit fur or whatever animal skins that God had made them. I'm sure Adam would love to suit and tie over some cowhide. But they get these crude animal skins, whatever kind they were. God gives them rough, ragged, crude, ugly animal skins to wear. He gives them ugly Christmas sweaters to wear, if you will. And so from our perspective, they are ugly. We wouldn't wear these clothes, but they were beautiful. They were beautiful to Adam and Eve. Crude, yes, but nonetheless, very, very beautiful. They were beautiful not because of how they looked, but because of what they symbolized. God covers the sin of humans with his righteousness. God covers the shame and the guilt of sin because God is merciful. Their sin is not counted against them and all the righteousness and perfection that they need to stand in God's presence is counted for them and the same is true for any Christian. And so this was the very first ugly Christmas sweater party because it was the first time that God brought up Christmas At the very first ugly Christmas sweater party with Adam and Eve clothed in ugly Christmas sweaters, God brings up Christmas for the very first time. This was the very first promise that God would send his son Jesus at Christmas to save us from our sin and our rebellion. 
This was the very first time that Christmas is mentioned in Scripture. It's the very first Advent celebration. The very first time that humanity would look forward to and anticipate the arrival of the one who would come and crush the head of the serpent. And so God came in the storm, yes, but he didn't wipe out Adam and Eve. He came in mercy to announce that one day the serpent crusher would come. One day his son Jesus would come and crush the head of the serpent. And what sweet, sweet news this must have been for Adam and Eve. What sweet news they would cling to as they had to deal with the consequences of their sin. And what sweet, sweet news we need to hear today. The sweet news that God always meets our mess with his mercy. I don't know what kind of mess you have made of your life. I know the holidays can bring out the messiness in families. I know the holidays can stir up pain and hurts. So maybe the thing that you need to hear today is that Jesus is merciful to you. He doesn't give you what you deserve. Maybe your life is just plain messy because of your sin and the sin of others. Well, understand this this morning. Your mess does not keep Jesus away. Your sin and your mess does not keep Jesus away ever. In fact, your mess and your sin attract him because he didn't come to call the righteous. He came to call sinners. Puritan Thomas Goodwin said this, your very sins move him to pity more than to anger. Your very sins move Jesus to pity more than to anger. Think about that, Grace. For those of us who have repented of our sins and we're trusting in Christ alone, this is true. Well, listen, if you're not a Christian here today, you are in a room with people who mess up all the time. We sin all the time, and it never changes God's feelings toward us. That's the gospel. And you can get in on that kind of one-way love, too, if you fess up and own up to your sin like Adam and Eve did. Yes, I did it and you turn from it, and you run to Jesus and you trust in him alone, then that can be true of you too, that your sins move him to pity more than to anger. Is that how you view Jesus after you've binged on sin? Do you see him moving towards you in pity and mercy? Or do you picture him full of wrath and anger? Goodwin continues, Your very sins move him to pity more than to anger. Christ, he takes part with you and is so far from being provoked against you as all his anger is turned upon your sin to ruin it. Yea, his pity is increased the more towards you, even as the heart of a father is to a child that hath some loathsome disease, or as one is to a member of his own body that hath the leprosy. He hates not the member, for it is his flesh, but the disease." And that provokes him to pity the part affected the more. What Thomas Goodwin is saying is that just like a parent is moved to compassion when their child is sick, that's how Jesus is towards us because we're sick with sin. We don't hate our children when they get sick, do we? We pity them. We hate the sickness. We hate the fever. We hate the stomach bug. We hate the cancer. But we don't hate our children We pity them. We love them. Our heart breaks for them. Our heart moves out to them even as we hate the sickness. 
And that's how God is with us. He hates our sin, but oh, how he loves us. Oh, how he pities us. Oh, how he comes in mercy to sinners like us. And Goodwin continues the idea. If your child becomes very sick, you do not kick the child out. You weep with him and tend to his needs. Christ responds to our sins with compassion despite his abhorrence of them. Right now, Christian, Jesus responds to your sins with compassion towards you. He will not kick you out. Just as a parent would never kick out their sick child, so too Jesus does not kick us out. He responds to our sins with compassion towards us despite his abhorrence and hatred of our sin. Your misery can never exceed his mercy. Let me ask you this morning, what sins have been weighing you down? The guilt and the shame of what you've done this week, last week, a month ago, two years ago. What are those sins that the devil keeps bringing up that you're just so full of shame and guilt and condemnation? What are those sins that you just binged on this week and you think there's no way I could go to Jesus? Man, I've just been enjoying sin, running from him and enjoying sin. I could come into his presence. Your misery can never exceed his mercy. He moves out to you when you are in the throes of your sin. As one pastor said, God's ability to clean things up is infinitely greater than our ability to mess things up. God's ability to clean things up is infinitely greater than our ability to mess things up. And our ability to mess things up is pretty big, isn't it? Because we do it all the time. We make stupid choices, sins driving all of our motives. We say stupid, sinful things, think sinful thoughts, do sinful things, have sinful motives driving everything that we think, say, and do. We have a great ability to mess things up, do we not? And yet God's ability to clean things up is infinitely greater. And that's good news. So leave with that in your heart today. You may mess things up with your sin, but God's ability to clean things up is greater than your ability to mess it up. Genesis 3 is proof of that. Adam and Eve are proof of that. Proof that God always meets our mess with his mercy. He doesn't give us what we deserve. That might be just what you need to get you through the Christmas season. Let's pray. Father, we are humbled by your word because we know we choose sin all the time. We love it. We think evil thoughts. We worry. We doubt. We live in fear. We lust. We covet. We harbor bitterness and unforgiveness in our hearts. We say awful things with our tongues. And so we stand condemned this morning. And yet, even though we do all those heinous things, you are infinitely greater in your mercy. Thank you for being so merciful to sinners like us. Thank you that you're gracious and kind. Even when we walk away from you, your steadfast love remains forever. 
Lord Jesus Christ, have mercy on us because we are sinners. In your name we pray, amen.